Welcome to Building Insight, brought to you by the lawyers at Glayhold Bowles LLP. Building Insight is Canada's first podcast dedicated to construction law and dispute resolution. We hope you enjoy the podcast. Thank you for joining us. My name is Patricia Joseph, and I am an associate here at Glayhold Bowles LLP. I am joined by my colleagues, Jackie Van Leeuwen and Miles Rosenthal. Today, we will be discussing construction contracts, including things to consider before entering into these contracts and the negotiation of terms. We understand embarking on new construction projects can be daunting, and this podcast is a practical resource for getting started. Please note, we always advise speaking with a lawyer who can tailor advice to your situation. One of the first things to consider when entering into a construction contract is which project delivery method you would like to use. I'm going to discuss four different types today, although others do exist, they're just a bit less common. The first model is design build. Under the design build model, the owner deals with one company which is responsible for design and construction of the project. It's often a general contractor, but it can also be a design professional like an architect or an engineer. This model can be faster and it may also reduce costs because the owner is dealing just with one entity, one contract, and there's one unified flow of work from initial concept to completion, at least in theory. There's also one point of responsibility on the project and therefore the owner can seek legal remedies from that one party if necessary. Another project delivery method is the design bid build model. This is sometimes called the traditional model. It's a common model. Under this model, the owner contracts with separate entities for the design and construction of the project. There's a design phase where the architect or engineer prepares bid documents, including drawings and specifications. And there's a bidding or tender phase where contractors bid to construct the project based on the bid documents. There's also the construction phase where the contractor constructs the project. This model may be slower because of the added tender process up front. However, it can also be beneficial because of the competitive nature of the bidding and tendering process, which can result in a more competitive price for the owner. However, under this model, it's important to ensure that the owner is protected in the event that a contractor underbids the work. So for example, it's a good idea to ensure that any bids that you're reviewing as the owner include all items of work and materials and essentially anything that you could be charged for throughout the project. It's also important to ensure that your contract is drafted in such a way that risk is allocated as intended, including in the event of an item being left out of a contractor's bid. Another project delivery method is the construction manager model. There is both an at-risk and not at-risk construction manager delivery method. Under the construction manager method generally, The owner hires a construction manager and trades. The construction manager prepares budgets and schedules and manages and oversees the work. It can also be combined with other project delivery methods. Under the construction manager at risk model, the construction manager commits to deliver the project within a guaranteed maximum price. The guaranteed maximum price or GMP is based on the construction documents and specifications at the time of the GMP when it was created plus any reasonably inferred items or tasks. So if something was left out, but it could be reasonably inferred, for example, you're building a home, but the roof was left out, that would presumably be factored into the GMP. 
Under the not at risk model, the construction manager does not bear the financial risk of paying subcontractors and suppliers. That remains with the owner. The construction manager also does not perform any construction work under the not at risk model. They take on more of an advisory role, assisting the owner with overseeing and administering the project. Another project delivery method is what's commonly called a P3 project. It's a public-private partnership, so as the name suggests, it's a partnership between a government entity and the private sector to build infrastructure like roads, hospitals, or schools, or to deliver services. Under the P3 model, the private sector assumes a major share of the risks in terms of financing and construction from design and planning to long-term maintenance. There's an upfront collaboration between the parties in the design and construction of the infrastructure with the goal of increasing efficiency and cost effectiveness. The P3 model is designed to build on the strengths of the design build delivery model. I'll turn it over to Patricia now, who will talk about some things to keep in mind for the procurement process. Some general tips for entering the procurement stage include first doing your due diligence. This is fundamental to selecting any party to complete a service for payment. It's worthwhile to even delay a project while conducting thorough due diligence of, for example, the general contractor or the trade instead of rushing into a project without doing your due diligence. This could save you time, money, and stress than if you chose the wrong company or individual to fill the role that you're looking for. The second general tip is make sure that you're looking at referrals. So word of mouth is one step in searching for the most competent companies or individuals for your project. Visit work sites and speak directly with others that have worked with that company or individual so that you can get a sense of how they operate on projects, any issues that came up with the quality of work that they performed, etc. And this goes for whether you're an owner looking for a GC or a GC looking for subcontractors on a project. Another recommendation for the procurement process is perhaps looking into consumer agencies such as the Better Business Bureau and just look for red flags when it comes to companies to see what rating they received and then review your basic rights under the Consumer Protection Act. This is particularly true of perhaps smaller projects like residential home builds. Do as much background investigation as you can into these companies before you take them on for larger projects. Another quick tip is to secure multiple quotes from different companies or different individuals to get a sense of the market price to avoid overpaying and to help you learn sort of the going rate of the type of service that you want to receive for the project. Ask a lot of questions. The more you know, the better equipped you are to see issues before they happen or to quickly respond if something doesn't seem right or they're proposing a term of an agreement that doesn't seem appropriate for the type of project. Identify what's important to you to have in a contract even prior to seeking out different companies or individuals. If you can identify what your priorities are, it's much better in finding companies or individuals that better align with what you need for your project. Once you've completed the procurement process, next is the contract drafting stage. Miles, why don't you talk a little bit about important things to keep in mind? Thanks, Patricia. Now I'm going to start by reiterating today's key takeaway. Consult a construction lawyer when entering into a construction contract. With that out of the way, the three basic elements of any construction contract are scope, what is the work the contractor will be performing, price, what is the cost of the work, and time, when does the work need to be completed by. Now, the most important thing to ensure when entering into a contract is clarity. 
Clarity benefits all parties because ambiguity may lead to problems such as delays, cost overruns, changes, and unfortunately, disputes. Having the consultant review and comment on the contract is important. As the party who designed the project, they may be in the best position to ensure clarity of scope, price, and time. Now I'm going to hone in briefly on price. Construction contracts can include a fixed or unfixed price. A fixed price agreement means the contractor agrees to a total price of, let's say, $10,000, and subject to any changes in the scope of work, agrees to complete the project for that price. If the contractor's costs go up, that risk is generally on them. On the other hand, a common example of a contract without a fixed price is what is known as a cost plus or time and materials contract. As an aside, cost plus and time and materials have slightly different meanings in a technical sense, but both are generally used interchangeably and both generally require the owner to reimburse the contractor for its costs plus a fee. Sometimes that fee can be fixed, but usually it's a percentage of the contractor's total costs often two to four percent. Unlike fixed price agreements, the risk of cost overruns is on the owner, unless your contract includes a guaranteed maximum price or a fee cap, which puts the risk back onto the contractor. Now, while there are pros and cons to fixed price and unfixed price agreements, fixed price contracts are the norm, especially when the project's scope of work is known prior to entering into the contract. Conversely, when the scope of work is anticipated to evolve over the course of the project, a cost plus agreement may be more appropriate. This is something that the parties and their lawyers can discuss when negotiating the agreement. Now, construction contracts are unique from other kinds of commercial agreements because they are generally subject to unique pieces of legislation. In Ontario, for example, all construction contracts are governed by Ontario's Construction Act. Now, a complete review of the Construction Act and how it affects construction contracts is beyond the scope of this podcast. This is something that you can and should discuss with your lawyer. But I will note that you cannot contract out of the Construction Act. So it's important that all parties understand their obligations under the Act and ensure that their contract does not contravene or conflict with the Act. Now, before I turn the mic over, I'm going to briefly discuss standard form agreements. Standard forms are commercially available contracts that have been drafted by industry organizations, such as the Canadian Construction Documents Committee, known as CCDC, or the Canadian Construction Association, known as CCA. Standard form design contracts also exist, prepared by organizations like the Royal Architectural Institute of Canada, RAIC, or the Association of Consulting Engineers Canada. These are tried and true agreements that are frequently used, especially in the commercial context. That said, even though these agreements are tried and true, you should still review them with your lawyer and most importantly, ask questions. Now, standard form agreements are often accompanied by an additional list of terms known as supplementary conditions. This is just a fancy way of titling an amendment or revision to the standard form. Supplementary conditions can be useful and are even sometimes necessary. While standard forms try to be one size fits all and anticipate things that are common to most projects, all projects are inherently unique. Standard forms also tend to be updated once a decade. If an important statutory change has taken place in the interim, the parties must ensure that the standard form is amended to reflect that statutory change. While contractors and owners tend to enter into negotiations with their own set of supplementary conditions that they are comfortable with, it is important to take a collaborative approach. 
and ensure that both parties understand the nature and scope of the supplementary conditions and how they amend or revise the standard form. It is even more important for both parties to have the list of supplementary conditions reviewed by their lawyers prior to executing the contract. The reason being, the provisions of the standard form are interconnected, using defined terms and often referencing other provisions in the contract or even statutory requirements. What may seem like a simple revision to just one provision may actually have a larger effect on the contract as a whole. Those are all great points, Miles. There are some other things to always keep in mind as well when you're considering entering into a construction contract. First of all, make sure you have a written contract. It sounds very basic, but we definitely run into situations where the parties have an oral agreement or maybe they have a draft written agreement that's not signed. Definitely want to make sure that you have the contract in writing and, of course, that it's been reviewed by your lawyer. Another thing that we sometimes run into is when subcontractors are entering into a contract with a contractor on the project and their subcontract incorporates the prime contract by reference. That's just one example, but generally if a contract, whether it's the prime contract or anything else, is incorporated into your agreement by reference, you want to make sure that you have a copy of whatever that document may be, be it the prime contract, a drawing, anything like that, and that you, of course, review it. This can help to prevent problems before they occur on a project and can help parties to make sure that they understand their rights under their contract. As another point, it's important for all parties to a construction contract to understand their responsibilities under the Construction Act and the Ontario Building Code. Again, this is an area where you may want to seek legal advice from a construction lawyer or a municipal lawyer. So I'll turn it over to Patricia now, who will give us some things to think about after the contract's been signed and the project is underway. Thanks, Jackie. Just some general highlights would be first, just be collaborative, be an active participant on the project, because ultimately you may be a decision maker when challenges arise. So for example, if work is incomplete or there are deficiencies that arise, you want to be sort of aware of what's happening on the project. So be as involved and as collaborative as you can be visible at the project site as much as you can. Next would be to ask questions. Require a detailed review of the scope of work, what needs to be done at each stage in the construction. If you're confused about anything or any parts of the process, just communicate those questions to the parties that can provide you with that information. Next would be document everything. Record keeping is really key. So in the event of a disagreement or formal dispute, documentation will be central. So contracts, amendments, progress reports, video, photographs of work, email correspondence, texts, dates outlining when work was happening on site, invoices, copies of checks, or wire transfers, receipts, just anything that can sort of fill that narrative of what took place. Because again, unfortunately, disputes do arise and you want to be in the best position to present that narrative with as much support as possible. Having good contemporaneous records is most beneficial. And these are records that were created in real time on the project and not after the fact when the work was done or when the the dispute arose. Always demand, again, 
So it's important documentation. Demand receipts, demand confirmation or certification of work that is complete. Do not sign off on anything unless it meets the terms of your agreement. And overall, I would say just be forthright and maintain a level of professionalism in your communications with all parties on the project. Again, in the case of a dispute, credibility is really important. Be honest in your interactions with everyone. Seek written confirmation of all agreements, including any amendments or changes in the scope of work. Your communications may be the center of a possible dispute and could become part of the public record. So just be forthright and professional communication is also a very important piece that you want to keep in mind. Next, we're going to be discussing payment. Miles? Thanks, Patricia. Probably one of the most important considerations when negotiating and drafting a contract is how and when payments are going to be made. As I mentioned earlier, all construction contracts in Ontario are subject to the provisions of the Construction Act, and most jurisdictions have similar legislation. So parties must ensure that the contract's payment provisions comply with governing legislation. Let's start with prompt payment. Prompt payment is a relatively new requirement of the Construction Act, and it applies to all construction projects with prime contracts entered into on or after October 1st, 2019, unless a procurement process for the project began prior to October 1st, 2019. The basic premise of prompt payment is that upon the contractor giving the owner a proper invoice, proper invoice being defined under the Act, the owner has 14 days to decide whether it is going to pay the invoice in full or dispute the invoice in whole or in part. If the owner chooses to pay the invoice in its entirety, it must pay the invoice in full within 28 days following its receipt of the proper invoice. If the owner chooses to dispute the invoice, it must, within 14 days of receipt of the proper invoice, give the contractor a notice of non-payment in the prescribed form outlining the reasons for non-payment. The contractor may then accept responsibility for the alleged issues or can dispute the notice of non-payment in adjudication or another form of dispute resolution. So let's turn to how an owner and a contractor can ensure their contract does not contravene the Construction Act's prompt payment provisions. First, you'll want to ensure that the contract requires the contractor to deliver proper invoices, as defined under the Construction Act. Importantly, while the Construction Act does provide a list of requirements in order for an invoice to be proper, these requirements are a bare minimum, and contracting parties may add to, but not take away from, this list of requirements under their contract. Second, you'll want to ensure that the deadlines for payment of the invoice and disputing the invoice are also included in the contract. If you are using a standard form contract, you may need to use supplementary conditions to amend a standard form that was last published prior to October 1st, 2019. Finally, you will want to ensure that the contract's dispute resolution provisions contemplate adjudication under the Construction Act. Now I'm gonna briefly pause here to note that while I've just discussed prompt payment in the context of an owner and a contractor, the Construction Act also requires prompt payment in the context of a contractor and a subcontractor and in the contracts of two subcontractors. Each of these contexts come with different rights, obligations, and deadlines. So be sure you are incorporating the correct prompt payment requirements into your agreement. Let's turn briefly to holdback. The parties must also ensure that payments made under the contract are subject to the Construction Act's holdback provisions. A detailed explanation of what holdback is is beyond the scope of this podcast, but put simply, it is amount held back by the payor under a construction contract from each of its payments to the payee 
until the Construction Act allows the amount held back to be released. Generally, but not always, holdback is released towards the end of a project. Once all liens that may be claimed against the holdback have expired or been satisfied, discharged, or otherwise provided for under the Act. Finally, let's turn to payment certification. Generally, but not always, the project's consultants will act as a payment certifier under the contract. In this role, the payment certifier will review the payee's invoice, confirm the work claimed under the invoice is in conformance with their design, and if it is, certify the invoice for payment by the owner. However, it is not uncommon for an owner to finance a project through a construction loan, in which case the lender may want a role in the payment certification process. If this is the case, it is important to specify the lender's role as payment certifier under the contract. Thanks, Miles. So what happens if you've done some work, but you haven't gotten paid? Or what happens if you've hired a party and you disagree with the amount that they're saying they're owed? Those are just two examples of common disputes on construction projects. There's also frequently disputes regarding schedule and delays, among other disputes. It's likely that your contract sets out a process that must be followed in the event of a dispute. It's important to make note of those provisions at the outset of your project and to make sure that you follow the steps that are outlined therein. For example, there might be notice requirements. So as an example, you may be required to give notice that you have a dispute within 10 days of that dispute occurring. Dispute resolution provisions in construction contracts are often tiered. So, for example, they might start with mediation and then go to arbitration and finally to litigation before the courts if the other two processes were unsuccessful. The dispute resolution process is something that can be tailored to the party's needs and wishes in their contract. And these can result in possible time and cost savings. For example, arbitration, while sometimes more expensive than litigation up front, can also get parties to a result faster in some cases. However, it's important to assure that you are truly tailoring the processes to what the parties would like to follow in the event of a dispute. For example, if you just include a boilerplate from a previous higher value contract, you might find yourself in a situation where you're required to follow a certain dispute resolution process, such as arbitration before the ICC, which costs $15,000 simply to initiate the process. Obviously, that's not something parties would want if the contract is, for example, $50,000. So it's just key to have those discussions right up front and make sure that everything is set out in the contract. Another form of dispute resolution that parties can take advantage of is adjudication. Adjudication is an option for all contracts where the prime contract for the improvement was entered into or the procurement process for the project was commenced after October 1, 2019. Adjudication complements the prompt payment regime that Miles discussed earlier. It's intended to be a fast, interim binding form of dispute resolution that's designed to keep the project moving and payment flowing during the project. Because it's only interim binding, the parties can also litigate or arbitrate later. Patricia, I understand you recently had some experience with adjudication. Can you elaborate on that for us? 
Thanks, Jackie. Sure. So we did use adjudication. We decided to pursue it for a residential matter, a residential dispute that came up with one of our clients who was a general contractor. We found that the adjudication process was really efficient and it allowed the client to also get a quick resolution at a lower cost. One of the benefits of adjudication is, again, the fast pace of getting a resolution so that projects can move forward on a timely basis. Through that adjudication, we were able to advocate for a client's position through written advocacy, so we didn't have to have a hearing. We were able to provide documents on the project, so it, it didn't have to be sort of an extensive review of documents that you typically have with standard litigation, but we just provided the necessary documents. So I think we were limited to maybe five pages or so, and then just a few supporting materials. So it was not an over-exhaustive process, which was beneficial to the client, again, to get a quick result. And with an adjudication, the determinations are interim binding. So as long as the other side doesn't intend on continuing to pursue a claim in court or to get a final order of the court, the determination will be treated as an order once it's entered as an order in the court. Or again, alternatively, if the opposing party decides to seek judicial review of the decision of the adjudicator, then perhaps that could be a reason why a decision may be overturned. Otherwise, the determinations are typically respected by the courts. And so it, overall, we found it to be a very positive experience. We had a successful outcome for the client, and we would certainly pursue it again in other circumstances where we see the value in adjudication in terms of, get, again, getting a quick result. Thanks, Patricia. Another remedy available to a party to a construction contract who's provided goods or services to the project is a construction lien. A lot of people in the construction industry are familiar with this remedy because it is a powerful remedy for, for those who work on construction projects. So what is a lien? A lien is a security interest in title to the property for the benefit of those who have supplied labor or materials that improve the property. The Construction Act sets out different timelines that must be followed if a party is pursuing a lien remedy. The timelines depend in part on when the prime contract was entered into, and they are quite tight. That being said, it's important to speak with a lawyer, either as we've been suggesting throughout, before a dispute occurs on a project, or very shortly thereafter to ensure that none of those timelines are missed. The lien timelines under the Act are quite strict as well. Something else to consider is that sometimes in construction contracts, there is a requirement for a lien that's been registered, for example, by a subcontractor or supplier to be vacated from title to the property. We won't go too far into what vacating means on this podcast. However, again, it's important to just review the contract and see who is responsible for potentially vacating liens on a project, because if you're the general contractor or the construction manager, it could be you. Another thing to keep in mind if you receive notice of someone else's lien, or if you see that a lien has been registered on title to your property, that means that a court action will be coming soon. And again, you should consult with a construction lawyer at your earliest convenience. It's important to note as well, further to our adjudication discussion, that you can and often should pursue a lien remedy even if you intend to adjudicate a dispute on a project. Thanks, Jackie. I think that brings us to our time today. 
Thank you to all of our listeners for listening to Building Insight. If you have any questions, you can send an email to info at Thank you for listening. Please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts. And visit glayholt.com for more information. If you have any questions, email us at info at We look forward to having you join us again.